Cairo, Seattle. And this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today, we are going to revisit an episode from February 2019 with Phil Rosenthal. Phil created, co-produced, and wrote for the TV show Everybody Loves Raymond, a show that was nominated for 69 Emmy Awards and won 15 of them. Since 2018, Phil has hosted a very charming food and travel show on Netflix called Somebody Feed Phil. The fifth season was released earlier this year. Two-thirds of Americans don't travel. And I think the world would be better if we all could experience a little bit of someone else's experience. One reason I decided to revisit this episode is because Phil has a new book coming out this October. It's called Somebody Feed Phil the Book, kind of a companion piece to his TV show, untold stories behind the scenes photos and favorite recipes, a cookbook. But another reason I decided to re-air this episode is because I have gotten messages from several listeners over the past few years saying, you should have Phil Rosenthal on the show. So if you missed it, here it is. If you've already heard it, I think it's worth a second listen. It is a delightful little episode centered around hot dogs. We'll explore two of the world's most beloved hot dog meccas, Copenhagen and Coney Island. Coney Island is home to Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs, and they have been hosting an annual hot dog eating contest for over 100 years, now run by Major League Eating. So Major League Eating, think of it as the NFL or Major League Baseball. We are the governing body of all stomach-centric sport. In America, we like a beer with our hot dog. But in Copenhagen, the beverage commonly paired with hot dogs is quite unexpected. All of that coming up, but first, my conversation with Phil Rosenthal. I went down a rabbit hole of watching a bunch of episodes of Somebody Feed Phil, and Phil just bounds into these cities like Copenhagen, Mexico City, Tel Aviv, and Lisbon with the excitement of a golden retriever puppy. He practically gallops. His eyes get wide when he eats. He gets so excited about food, and he gets to eat his way through these cities with locals as his guides. I read a quote from you where you said, I'm exactly like Anthony Bourdain if he was afraid of everything. But you don't seem afraid. It seems like you're trying a lot of things. What did you mean when you said that? I mean that I'm afraid of everything that he does. Okay. Meaning that that he he was a great adventurer and a a daredevil and scared of nothing. And I'm, you know, a nice Jewish boy from Queens. And I'm not... Going to Borneo to have the tribesmen nail a tattoo into my chest. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to Beirut where I might get shot at, right? I need a hotel with a bed and a pillow because that's who I am. And I think that maybe there's other people like me out there. So this is the show for them. It is very entertaining to watch Phil eat. When he bites into something, his eyes get huge and he spastically points to the food that he's chewing. And in that moment... No one else in the world is enjoying their meal as much as Phil is enjoying his meal. I want to talk about your infectious enthusiasm because on the show, you are always wide-eyed and excited uh, and every food is the best. And then it's funny because I was looking at your at your Twitter account and you have this adorable picture of, I'm assuming it's you when you're like five years old, and you look the same in that picture. You look wide-eyed and enthusiastic as well. So where did you get this zest for life and food? That picture, I'm reading a TV guide because I love TV so much. That must have been 1965 or 6. 
I was always in love with TV. I can't say I was in love with food then because I didn't get a lot of great food. My parents were not cooks. Both my parents worked. We didn't have a lot of money. You know, we made do with what we had. And I always joke that my, my mother had a setting on the oven for shoe. <laughs> she was like Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. Yes, I saw that movie and saw, oh, he eats it too. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, I just, I don't know, you're born with a certain enthusiasm now on the show. You know, there's that people say, how do you eat so much? And why you always look excited? Well, you know how they make a dog food commercial? I sure don't. They, they don't let the dog eat until the commercial. And I'm the dog. I don't really eat until I'm on camera. And what you're seeing is 10 days worth of shooting condensed into an hour. So in every scene that you see, that's probably all I ate for that day. And I'm not even finishing it all. I'm giving a lot of it to the crew who are looking at me with their tongues hanging out. And I'd be cruel not to share with them. Well, I like that you say you like to share because that fits in with the way that Patton Oswalt describes the show. He says uh, it's the Mr. <laughs> Rogers of food shows, which I thought was a really <laughs> funny thing to say. Can you talk about oh. what that means? Well, I guess I'm positive. I guess I like people. I guess I like to share my experiences. It's why I do the show. I learned uh, on an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond that we did that that I saw Ray Romano get turned on when we went to Italy. He didn't want to go at first. And, and then when we went there, I saw him get uh, woke. <laughs> he understood <laughs> the magic of of travel and the food in these places and the people. And I thought, wow, that was the year 2000. I thought, I, I want to do this for other people. And the backstory of that was, wasn't Ray Romano 40 years old and he said he'd never been abroad? Is that what the story was? That's absolutely true. He said, I'm not really interested in other cultures. I couldn't believe it. So I knew then we had to do that episode where we send him over with that attitude as him. And then we send him back as me. <laughs> Voila. That's what happened. I saw it happen, not just to the character, but to the person. And, and I said, I, I want to keep doing this. Raymond ended it in 2005, and it took me about 10 years to get this show, which started on PBS. You know, we did six episodes for them. We won the James Beard Award for Best Food and Travel Show. I was so ex I was as excited about that as any Emmy that we ever won because this was a new field for me. I completely understand. Not to brag, but I got a James Beard nomination this year, oh. and I felt the same way because I've been doing news for 15 years. I start this yeah. podcast, and it's the thing that I love the most, and so it right. totally means more, and it means something to you know get nominated or win something in the realm of the thing you're most passionate about. That's exactly right. Things we love, right? When you took Ray Romano to Italy and you tried to turn him from a Neanderthal into a very cultured <laughs> traveler and into eater. Into a Rosenthal. That's right. Yes. Uh, was there a particular food or particular place that you used strategically or that you saw like help him blossom? What kind of turned him? Honestly, there's a scene in that episode where he's standing on a street corner in a little village in Italy and he gets a slice of pizza and it rocks his world. And we have that in the show. And I swear to you, that really happened where he was tasting the pizza there and the gelato. And every night we were having pizza and gelato after whatever dinner we had, we'd be walking down the street and go, oh, shouldn't we try that pizza? It looks really good. And I'm like, okay. And we try and he goes, and look, there's a gelato place. Yeah, there's lots of them, Ray. Yeah, but we didn't have this one. All right. 
And then the, every single night he was, you know, I saw it happen, like the blossoming of a human being. So what country's food surprised you the most, delighted you the most? I think everybody knows of food hubs like Paris and Tokyo, New York. Yes. Was there a hidden gem someplace that you weren't expecting? Uh, the biggest surprises for me this year, I would say, were Copenhagen, where everybody food from the very high end places to the hot dogs on the street were just sensational. That was surprising to me. I thought Nordic food would be somewhat limited, and it's not limited at all. It's phenomenal. And I loved Lisbon as well. I thought the food there, which I, I, I didn't really know about Portugal. I would say it's the most underrated European city, Lisbon. I even went back since we filmed. I brought my wife back for a little vacation there because I said, you got to see this place. You needed more salt cod in your life. That's right. Yeah, I liked it. I went last year and I was really surprised how good that was. And what about the pastries? They were serious about pastries there as Paris. Yeah, those little um, egg custard tarts. I don't remember what they're called in Portuguese. Pastel. And if you're having more than one, it's pastéche. Pastéche. Pastéche, yes. We all sound like Sean Connery talking about pastries. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fine pastry. It is a delicious pastry. <laughs> Phil, let's talk about your last meal. What would you choose to eat if you could only have a one last thing? I've thought a lot about this, and I think it would be a plate that contained childhood's greatest hits for me. The best hot dog, the best slice of pizza, the best fried chicken, right? The best tuna fish sandwich. <laughs> because I figure if it's my last meal, you want to come full circle. You want to go back to where it started, where your love of food started. Now, there are things that, you know, I think are delicious and wonderful that I've had, you know, fancy meals and whatnot. But... The emotional connection is with that stuff, I think, for all of us. But that's interesting that you say that because you grew up eating shoes. And so I'm surprised that you're drawing <laughs> from your childhood for these you yes. know, happy food moments. But those were the happy places. You know, when, when I could go out to, to get a hot dog somewhere or even, you know, make one myself. I loved it so much. Or a burger, a great slice of pizza. These are things that I think are universal. And I find them everywhere. People like these things. Let's narrow it down a little bit. So to you, what yeah. is the best hot dog? Which one uh, would you choose? Well, if you see the New York episode, you see me go to Nathan's in Coney Island, the original Nathan's. And uh, that holds a special place in my heart. Uh, I think there's other great hot dogs. And in Copenhagen, I made a big scene out of going. I thought their, their hot dogs were phenomenal. I love the hot dogs in Chicago. You know, I don't have to pick the best. People always ask me, what's better, Chicago pizza or New York pizza? I'm not choosing. <laughs> They're very, very different. Yeah. And I love them both. There's only two kinds of anything I find, good and not so good. I know you like many different kinds of hot dogs, but for you, if you were making one and dressing it yourself, what are your perfect toppings? Wow, that's a great question. If I do it myself at home, which I do often... Uh, I don't. I, as I, I love hot dogs, and yet I try. I know they're not great for you, so I try to get some turkey dogs and you know chicken dogs, and once in a while even a veggie dog, which I don't especially like. But the truth is, if you put the right toppings on it, it's only a vehicle for those toppings. So I love a brown mustard. I love onions on the hot dog, and I love sauerkraut—a really good sauerkraut. Yeah, hot dogs are, I think, as divisive as pizza because people in Chicago will lose their minds if you talk about putting ketchup on a hot dog. I know. You know, I have a <laughs> feeling about that, too. Who cares? Eat it how you like it. It's time for a quick break. But when we return, the history of America's favorite hot dog eating contest and why you shouldn't put any condiments on your hot dog. 
First Love Hot Dog is a Nathan's Famous Hot Dog from the original location in Coney Island, Brooklyn. Nathan Handwerker opened Nathan's Hot Dogs back in 1916. Today, over 100 years later, it's still in the exact same location, but now it takes up an entire block. I have to admit, I've never been to Coney Island, so I'm going to let marketing director Phil McCann set the scene. It's right on the water, so you have that salt water kind of smell. Um, it's right in the amusement park of, on the edge of Coney Island, which is the, used to be the, uh, the playground of the rich and famous in the 20s. And it's really just kind of a very happening, buzzing place. We have 47 registers in the summertime, or you know, each one is 15, 20 people deep, just cranking out our uh, hot dogs and fries and burgers and chicken and cheesesteaks. And we have a whole seafood bar. Um, fresh clams and oysters are shucked whenever a guest orders them. When Nathan's opened in 1916, his competitor across the way was selling hot dogs for 10 cents a piece. So Nathan decided to sell his for five cents. But he was worried that people would think that his cheap dogs equaled poor quality. So he had a very clever marketing plan. He hired people to dress up like doctors with the white coats, and I'm thinking even the stethoscopes around their necks. He had them come up, order hot dogs, and eat them in front of his stand. Research shows that 9 out of 10 fake doctors recommend Nathan's hot dogs. Is there a way to eat a Nathan's hot dog? I mean, I know you can leave it up to each individual customer. They can do what they want. But does Nathan's have a this is the perfect hot dog kind of recipe as far as toppings are concerned? Well, we like to say that the perfect Nathan's hot dog has nothing on it. Um, you just eat it plain with the bun and, and has a, the rich, spicy, garlicky flavor from uh, Ida's grandmother's secret spice recipe. But here in New York, for the most part, our uh, customers and our restaurants prefer mustard or mustard and sauerkraut. That's pretty much the way most of our hot dogs in our restaurants are eaten. So I can totally get on board with that. I've always seen hot dogs as just a catalyst for toppings and just load up as much as I could on a hot dog. But now I'm dating someone who doesn't like condiments. And this last summer we went camping and we made hot dogs. And I tried for the first time, probably since I was a kid, just a plain hot dog in a bun. And it is so good. I've completely converted myself. It's because now I realize when I put especially ketchup, you can't even taste the meat. It's so true. I mean, I I myself, I like my dog with uh, a little bit of mustard, not even a lot. I just want to say that I used the wrong word. I didn't mean to say catalyst. But you know what? Sometimes when you're thinking on the fly, you say the wrong word. So what I meant was a vehicle for condiments. But Nathan's is just as famous for their hot dogs as they are for their hot dog eating contest. It takes place outside of their Coney Island hot dog stand every year at high noon on the 4th of July. And if you're not one of the thousands of people in the crowd, you can watch people shoving hot dogs down their gullets on ESPN. The contest is officially sanctioned by basically the NFL of competitive eating, Major League Eating. And its president, Richard Shea, told me that the oral history suggests that the hot dog eating contest started the same year that Nathan's opened, back in 1916. It was July 4 out there by the beach, and uh, a few different immigrants to America were standing around arguing who was the most patriotic. And and Nathan said that he would settle it once and for all by uh, whomever could eat the most of his hot dogs in 10 minutes would be crowned the most patriotic. Our archives show that it was a guy named uh, Jim Mullen, an Irish immigrant, who ate 13 Nathan's hot dogs and buns at noon on uh, 1916. So that's that's the history. Oral history also says that the contest has been happening 
almost every year since 1916. There are a few gaps here and there, but it wasn't until Major League Eating stepped in in the 1990s that it started to get really big. And at that time, the record was 20 hot dogs and buns eaten in 12 minutes. But then in the early aughts, a word I've been using a lot recently and quite enjoy, a skinny Japanese competitive eater named Takeru Kobayashi came along and this dude broke the record. He ate 50 hot dogs in 12 minutes and introduced his method of dipping the buns in water before he ate them. So what is the current world record for hot dog eating? Joey Chestnut's won 11 Nathan's uh, titles, mustard yellow belts, and he has consumed 74 Nathan's hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. And I don't know that we'll ever see anyone like Joey Chestnut again. I don't know that we'll ever see north of 70, 74 hot dogs. It's just absolutely astonishing. Joey has really cemented himself as the finest of all time. The Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, Muhammad Ali of competitive eating. Update. Joey Chestnut has since broken his own record. At the 2021 Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, he ate 76 hot dogs. If you've watched any kind of eating competition and you've gawked at some of these mega skinny competitors just horking down dozens of oysters and dozens of slices of pizza, Richard explains why. There is a theory behind the skinny people eating a lot of food. It's called the belt of fat theory. And it was conceptualized by one of his competitive eaters. Uh, He told me that they've tried to submit this theory to several medical journals and were denied. So who knows if this is real. But the idea is if you have less fat in your gut, then your belly can expand out and make room for more food while you're eating. But if you have a lot of fat in your belly, your stomach hits a point and it can't protrude anymore. So who knows if this is true, but hey, that's why they call it a theory. So a Nathan's hot dog is Phil Rosenthal's American favorite. And obviously New York is famous for having a dirty water hot dog cart on every corner. But there is another city that celebrates the hot dog, and that is Copenhagen, Denmark. Copenhagen got its name on the culinary map because of Noma, a fancy restaurant that celebrates foraging and fermentation that was named the best restaurant in the world four times over. But when you're strolling the streets of Copenhagen and hunger strikes, you're not going to go to Noma because you will not be able to get in. You need reservations at least six months out. What you might do is stop at a hot dog cart and get a Copenhagen-style hot dog. We'll tell you exactly what that means when we come back. to Copenhagen, one of the foods he fell in love with were their street dogs. How were the hot dogs different in Copenhagen? Oh, well, first of all, every ingredient of everything in Copenhagen. Have you been there? I have not. Oh, it's a utopian society. I recommend it. It's just wonderful. But all the ingredients are clean and pristine and, and, and wonderful. And then they have a variety of toppings. You know how Chicago, they drag it through the garden, right? So in Denmark, they have their garden. And they have raw onions and fried onions. They have uh, their pickles. They have different sauces for different hot dogs, different meats even that I found. There was one made with goat that was fantastic. Mm, I'm getting hungry thinking about it. I know, me too. It's so good. And I, I went to this one hot dog cart and I had them all. I tried every single one. So what is the Danish word for hot dog? It's actually hot dog. It's, oh, that's the word for it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's Rasmus Palsgaard. 
a food and wine journalist based in Copenhagen. And he's going to break down the traditional Copenhagen hot dog. So just like ours, it starts with a bun, but theirs is made with whole wheat. In the Copenhagen version, the hot dog is so much longer than the bun and it sticks out on both sides. And ours are always inside the bun. And sometimes you get a bite of bread and no hot dog and it's really sad. In the the American one. In the American one. So I think yeah, you guys yeah, are yeah, doing it yeah. better. The, the sausage has to be longer than the bread. That's That's just a basic rule. The sausage is always made of pork with a natural casing that snaps when you bite into it, just like a Nathan's dog, actually. And you can choose from a boiled dog, which is dyed red, or a brown dog, which is either grilled or fried in a pan with some fat. And now the part that I've been really excited about. Let's talk toppings. The standard one is with a line of mustard, ketchup, and then some uh, remoulade. Are you familiar with remoulade? Can you describe what it is? Well, the the base is a mayonnaise, and then you add different pickles and some curry and different spices. So it's it's actually yellow. It's uh, it's it's a typical Danish uh, dip. Then on top of that, you will find diced raw onions and uh, fried onions and pickled cucumber slices. Mm. That's how it works. That's a pretty standard order. If you order a hot dog, do they automatically make it that way? Yes, that would be the standard. I have never had a Copenhagen dog. And after watching Phil's episode where he goes to Copenhagen, I want one so badly. It seems like it hits on all of the points that make a dish delicious. You have the hot sausage. You have the cool, creamy remoulade. You have the crunchy onions. And you have the acidic brown mustard. And then the sweet fried onions. It just has it all. Texture, temperature. I really want to go to Copenhagen. And when I was cruising around online researching the Copenhagen dog, there was something kind of strange that caught my attention. You're supposed to pair your hot dog with a cold glass of chocolate milk. According to one article I read, there were restrictions on carbonated drinks back in 1920 when the hot dog carts became popular. So they decided to go with chocolate milk instead. Before I ever started this podcast, I was always asking people what their last meals were. I started with friends and then I moved on to chefs. And the thing that most people's last meals have in common is that they're rooted in nostalgia. And that is certainly the case for Phil's last meal. Do you have childhood memories of eating hot dogs like with your family? Oh, yeah. I have have childhood memories of of coming home from school like my high school was, was a block away. And on Fridays, I timed it so that I could go home, make two hot dogs in the toaster oven and eat them and get back to school eat with the cooking time and everything. I figured it out to the minute. I couldn't do it every day, but Fridays was my special hot dog day and I loved it. Did you bring friends back home with you or was this your solo Zen hot dog moment? It's hilarious because I had, I had friends who wanted to come home for lunch with me, but I told them that on Friday that I couldn't have them because I couldn't make more than two hot dogs in the time that we had. So I would rather have my hot dogs alone (laughs) than to have my friends with me. How sick is that? I love it, though. It was your Zen alone time hot dog It was my little, that was my thing I did for me. I was such a nerd. I was so, I mean, I think back on that. I'm like, I'm proud of myself and ashamed of myself at the same time. And that was Phil Rosenthal's last meal. If you have an international trip coming up, it is really fun to watch an episode of Somebody Feed Phil featuring the country that you're traveling to. I did this when I was going to Mexico City, and you will get great ideas on where to eat, and you'll get even more excited about your trip. Phil's new book is called Somebody Feed Phil, The Book. 
You can pre-order it now or pick it up at your local independent bookstore after October 18th. Thanks to Phil McCann at Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs and Richard Shea with Major League Eating. Do you think that a hot dog is a sandwich? Uh, I, I think a hot dog is, is a, hot, a hot dog. You know, it's way up there on the hierarchy of foods with, with lobster and caviar. I think a sandwich is two pieces of bread filled with, you know, lesser meats when the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog itself, you know, stands alone as one unit. If you want to hear the true authority on whether a hot dog is in fact a sandwich, go back in the archives and listen to my interview with John Hodgman, host of one of my very favorite podcasts, Judge John Hodgman. As I brought it up with Stephen Colbert on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, would you call a taco a sandwich? Of course not. What do people say when you give them your verdict? I would term the, the kind of feedback I have received on this as endless and unceasing. <laughs> Go back and listen to that episode. It is a great one. And while we're playing Six Degrees of Phil Rosenthal, the Somebody Feed Phil theme music is performed by past Your Last Meal guests, Lake Street Dive. The episode with Rachel, the singer of the band, and Mike, the drummer of the band, is a personal favorite. Oh, and one more thank you to Copenhagen food and wine journalist Rasmus Palsgaard. The original version of this episode was produced by me and Aaron Mason. This re-release version was produced by me and Laura Scott. Theme music by Prom Queen. Make sure you're following along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell, B-E-L-L-E. That is where you will find a photograph of my butterboard. Yeah, that's right. I also made a butterboard. I'm cool. I'm trending. Or maybe you think it's not cool because I made a butterboard. Why is there so much controversy around this butterboard? Who doesn't like bread and butter? Anyway, all that on my Instagram. Check it out. If you like the show, please rate and review, or you can help spread the word the old-fashioned way. Tell a friend, someone who likes food, food history, celebrity interviews. There's a little something for everyone, and we would appreciate you spreading the good word. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. 